We have to start over. That's that's perfect now, right? <laughs> exactly. I didn't hit the record button. I thought I, I thought I hit it when you joined in, and and we got, no, I got distracted with all the trying to get this thing to work. Don't apologize. It's good. All right. So take two. The Uncomfortable Truth Podcast is sponsored by the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation, dedicated to ending racism through education, while preserving, sharing, and continuing the legacy of civil rights icon, Joan Trumpower Mulholland. Support the foundation and programs like this podcast by becoming a monthly sustaining donor. Visit jtmfoundation.org to get started. That's jtmfoundation.org. Welcome to The Uncomfortable Truth, where we answer the questions we all need to be asking about race and racism in America. I'm Loki Mulholland. I'm LeVon Brown. It's time time to get get uncomfortable. Oh, dear God, my child's face is black, black as a blackbird's wing. So God, please be merciful and let her young heart sing. The words of a prayerful mother in 1967 asking God to protect and keep her daughter, who would go on to become the first black female judge in the history of Mississippi, Judge Constance Slaughter Harvey, a native of Forest, Mississippi. Her life would take a turn when six days after she met civil rights leader Medgar Evers, he was assassinated. Thank you for joining us, Judge. Thank you for having me. Now, I, want to, uh, I want to ask this question because it's, what was it about Medgar Evers' assassination that led you to pursue a law degree at the University of Mississippi where, where you would become the first African-American female to graduate from their law school in 1970? I think it's just the, the, the fact that I could finally meet a man who, as he appeared on television, and back then you didn't see many black people on television. Um, I had heard so much about him. My daddy admired him, my mother admired him. And when I met him, I was just in awe. And his message, the manner in which he resonated, his spirit, uh, all of that was really attractive. And then he was a good looking man. Uh, He was not arrogant. He appeared to be very humble and very sincere. And he just, just, you just, not grew to him, but he just became a part of your psyche. You were growing up hearing about this man and then to finally actually be in his presence and meet him. Yes. Then for him to be just cut down by a coward. Yes, and, and, and I think that I had heard so much about him and his strength and the manner in which he talked and conveyed his disappointment with the system reminded me so much of my father. Because hmm. Daddy despised injustice and so did my mother. So when I find this man who was younger than my father, not much younger, but who's younger than my father, who articulates that same kind of pain verbally, uh, I could identify with him. Yeah. And you've written that you inherited your parents' intense dislike for injustice. What was, what was it that you were seeing from your parents that informed that for you? Oh, my daddy had six daughters, and whites wanted us to work for them. And he made it quite clear that we had enough work to do at home. So he was not about to hire us out. And secondly, my parents would not let us go to the movies because we would have to sit in the balcony. My parents would not let us ride the bus because we would have to sit at the end of the bus, at the back of the bus. My parents would not let us play with our next door neighbors because they were white and he knew what would happen. We could probably play with them, but later on, you know, the the real problem would would manifest itself you, you you mentioned i mean clearly i mean obviously there's there's the help right mm-hmm. and hiring out his six daughters which he wasn't going to do there's another layer to that being a father of 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 girls in a society where there's a history of let's say you know of, of rape was that, was that a fear of your father's as well, that, that indignity of in that history? I really don't think that was it. I mean, uh, I think he, he just was not about to let us work for somebody who obviously had oppressed us, oppressed his parents, and oppressed him. So, you know, he was about having pride and dignity in who you are. 
And I believe that's why he took the position that he did. And he also knew that whites could mistreat us. He may have been thinking about rape, but, but that never crossed my mind. Right. But he may have been thinking about it. He never articulated that to us. It's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, Levon and I have done several interviews, particularly in Mississippi, and um, a lot is said about sheltering, uh, that their parents sheltered them from the indignities of segregation and Jim Crow. So they weren't really that familiar with it because they never had to truly experience it until later in life. Right. It, it sounds like your parents, that you understood what it was, but your parents were like, in respects, particularly with your father, in respects to you know, not being hired out is, look, you're not going to look at my daughters as just maids. They're more than that. Right, right. And he, yeah, that's it. And he taught us that we were, we were gifted. Uh, he taught us that even though we were women uh, in this male-dominated society, um, that we were just as good as anybody else. And the fact that we were women uh, had nothing to do with what was expected of us. So it it was, I was born and we were born and raised thinking that we were equal to anybody else. Mm. No more, no less. What town was this? We, I was born in Jackson on Ferris Street in an all black hospital. Two years later, my parents moved to Meridian, Mississippi. And then 54 Brown versus Board of Education, my father moved to Forest, Mississippi. So I was really born in Jackson, uh, six or seven years in Meridian, and then I've been in Forest since 1954. Now where's, I'm, I'm just for my own interest, where's Forest? I'm from Jackson originally. Okay. And so Forrest, I was wondering where Forest is. I know Meridian. You were originally from Jackson? Yeah, my I was born in Jackson. Uh-huh. I lived near Edwards for about four years, five years, I guess, with my uh -huh. grandmother. Then I went to live with my mother and her husband in Jackson. And yeah, and that's where I joined the movement. So okay. but I do know where Meridian is, because we used to go to Meridian. Okay. Uh, I was just wondering where you were. You passed through forest going to Meridian. It's halfway between Jackson and Meridian. Really? On Highway 80, old Highway 80, and now I-20, I interstate. Probably not, okay. Yeah. I just didn't it's, remember it. I guess not. It's a small <laughs> town. If you're from the big town of Edwards, Mississippi, of, <laughs> of course you don't know how to deal with small towns like Forest. A big town? A big town? Oh yeah, tongue in cheek when I say it that. <laughs> 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 We're going to get a small town again here real quick because in your, your youth really seemed to have heavily influenced, uh, have a heavy influence in your latter years. And whether it was uh, not giving into the name calling from peers because you carry slot buckets, uh -huh. pigs your father was raising, or on Saturday morning, your court sessions your father held with you and your five sisters when he reviewed your behaviors and misdeeds through the week. All those things seem to have started adding up. But thinking about, in particular, this name-calling. I think they called you Pigpen, right? Right. It's Slaughterhead and Slaughter Bucket and Slop Bucket. And, yeah, and, and th that could have destroyed me, but it didn't. I mean, I didn't like it. You know, but I didn't particularly like getting up out of bed, going to school. I didn't jump up eager to go to school. But when I understood that carrying a slop bucket was my way of making a living so that I could get the things that I wanted, like a watch, um, it didn't bother me. I mean, it bothered me, but it, you know, it didn't destroy me. But I also have to think that, you know, what, what your parents were instilling in you about your sense of self-worth, that whatever anyone said to you, you knew who you were. That's that's why, and, and you know, and that even surrounded me when this judge told me, "Nigger, if you get out of your seat, I'll put you in jail." I knew that I was not a nigger, mm -hmm. but I was not about to let him be comfortable referring to me as a nigger. 
So for the sake of the children, the clients that I represented, I sat down because I knew what the judge was about. He wanted to get me in jail and that I would probably disappear. And I was not about to do that. Uh, I also understood that if I went to jail, there was nobody else but the lawyers committed for civil rights and the law to get the students out because I was the only person licensed to practice in the state. So it, it, I understood what his game was about, but it still made me angry. Right. Now, now when you're talking about the students, you're talking about the, uh, the students who had protested that there wasn't uh, an MLK day. That's right. In Pearl, Mississippi, I think it was 22 uh, black students and they were uh, arrested when they tried to walk out of school and they were put in jail with hardened criminals. Right. We filed a motion to remove the case from state court to federal court and I went to court before the Judge Porter, L.B. Porter, to let him know, to at least give him some notice. Being trying, I was trying to be professional mm -hmm. and I give him a notice that you don't have jurisdiction of this case anymore. And when I got up to announce that, that's what he told me, you know, nigga, if you get out of that chair, I'll have you arrested, Mr. Sheriff. And the sheriff was probably, he was eager to arrest me too. Mm. So, you know, sometimes you have, to, but sometimes you have to swallow your pride temporarily. Mm. You pick your battles. I later learned to use that, but then I, I, I did not deal with picking my battles. I just knew that the kids heard him call me nigger and I wanted to react violently react but I had to be patient I had to bide my time and now I would say I picked you have to pick your battles yeah right and, and if you had violently react verbally violently react whatever you might have won that particular battle for yourself but you would have lost the war for the children for the children yeah. for the children no yeah. you 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 never seem to want to actually back down from anything now because I, I, I want to I want to jump up moment to to Rick's Hall. Oh when yeah, you, you, you must have you, you must have been talking to your mama. So you uh you're getting your law degree, uh, getting your law degree was not a walk in the park, and after you moved into Rick's Hall in particular, and so you refused to back down and to play the submissive part many of your white male peers expected of you, particularly this one that you describe as this Nazi-looking sort of guy, and you're walking down the sidewalk. And your part is to get off the sidewalk, but you don't do that. That's right. And what do you do to them? Well, we bump each other and we did it several times. And on one occasion, it seemed like he was trying to bump me harder. And it, looks like, it looked like he was coming over taking more of the sidewalk than he normally took. And we clashed, we hit each other. And my hands just automatically went at him and we got into a fight. And, you know, I used to be able to fight and I think I got the better of him, but they had to pull us apart. I just, you know, it was, that was just instinctive. Mm. Um, and that's why I can say, I admire your mother because she was nonviolent. And every time I look at those, that film, I cringe because I, I, I admire her. And, and those that took that kind of mental beating, um, but I was never like that. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned once about your father's um, poll tax receipt. Right. And that you keep that as a reminder and that this right. voter registration is an important thing to you in, 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 in voting. And even when you were at Tougaloo College, when you pledged Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, I have it on pretty good authority that when you pledged, y'all had to do voter registration. Yes, we had to, uh, it was part of our initiation to go into Jackson and go into the areas that nobody wanted to go into, like what they call the projects, uh, housing authority. And um, we had to go in and register folks. And I enjoyed that more than anything about the initiation process. Because I got to see people that I had never seen before. I got a chance to empathize with those that, that 
I probably had experienced some of the same problems they experienced. And I just, I felt like I was welcomed. And they were very pleased for us to come and, and talk with them and, and let them know that they had a responsibility to vote. So yeah, that was a challenge to me. But voter registration in Mississippi in that time is, that's pretty hardcore. It was hardcore and, but it was necessary. You know, again, I go back to, to, um, to Medgar. His message and the part that always resonates with me is that if you want to be counted, you have to sign up. If you want to be heard, you have to vote. And to me, that's so real. And it's surreal. It's coming back to us now. In order to be heard, you have to speak up and vote. Mm. Otherwise, you're not heard. And so Medgar and his spirit, and my father was the same way. Each one of us, when we became 21, because back then you couldn't register at 18, you registered at 21. When we became 21, it, you, had, you, were, you were going down to the courthouse and registered, and it was like a party. So to do that, to, to encourage people to register, um, that defined Delta for me. Mm. Because Delta was about change, social change. Uh, it wasn't about just partying and doing all that, but it, it was something meaningful. And to this very day, it still resonates in my heart that Delta is about helping others. Mm. You know, I, one of the things I, I still react to when I hear uh, Black people talk about, you know, it's all the same, I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to bother. And that's how they elected Trump. And yes, I keep trying to explain to them that the reason you get ignored every year is because you don't vote. Mm -hmm. Why should a politician pay any attention to you if you don't vote? Well, you're they right. don't have to. Right. You're absolutely right. And, and Joe Biden this year is paying attention, but up, up until now, you don't want to vote. They don't have to pay attention. So they pay attention to the people that do. I, I don't understand to this day. I mean, I don't talk to them about it. When I find people that don't vote, especially black people, I don't talk to them. I said, your guy won, uh, at, you know, congratulations. Because we need to vote from day one. And, and, and unfortunately, we don't. I, I, yeah, but I, I think it's, there's some legitimacy to their concerns. Uh, and, and I don't try to, I try to encourage them. I don't try to tell people that your vote will change things because that's a lie. No, you don't tell them that. I know it, but some people, some people do that. I don't do that. No, I don't, I I'm not. don't vote. Things won't get any better. Right. Now, I, no, I do the same. I do the same thing. Right. I, you know, uh, but you can't complain if you don't, if you don't participate, if you don't vote, you can't complain. I agree with that. I agree with that. You're going to be going to be ignored. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I think that this, this campaign, what's happening to this country now, is so pathetic. Oh. But it, is, it does not surprise me. And I had a bet, no money involved, that Trump was going to win the presidency when he got, I, I bet that he was going to win the nomination. Right. Because Trump spoke to real hard of America. And for his election, it made me realize that I was not insane. Because I knew that whites, those that have very strong emotions about their superiority, I knew that they had not changed. They had just put that in their back pocket. Right. And when that time was right, it would come out, they would pull it out. So I was not surprised and I still am not surprised. You know, so that's something that, that concerns me, that, that we are so shocked 
I'm not surprised. Yeah, no, it's not surprising at all. I think a lot of us thought that the, for some reason, a lot of people thought that we could relax because the battle was won. Because there oh, was yeah. a black guy in the White House. And I'm saying, oh, yeah. Yeah. pay attention. Yeah. They are planning, scheming. Uh, you don't stop. And, and we did. Uh, there's a lot of black kids who are just learning about history. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of white kids who are now saying, wait a minute, you've been telling the truth all along. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot going on uh, that hopefully, hopefully, does not go away when the election is over because they are not going to stop. The reason we have white people and black people is because white people told them that. That's what we were. Mm -hmm. And all the, the gloves came off. You know, they, the gloves came off. So now there's no reason um, for us not to keep, not to fight. There's no reason. That's true. I, and I, I guess the thing about it is that I try to understand why our folks don't vote. And, but I also try to encourage them. Let's give it another chance. Let's try again. And perhaps thing will be, things will be better. And I try to relate it to the future of their children. Right. And it, it, it seems to me that we as African-Americans who were involved in the movement per se, and those whites who were genuinely committed, it seems as if we forgot to educate those who were coming after us. And so we have that void. And so when young children have young children, they, their parents don't know what we went through. Exactly. I blame, I truly blame a lot of that on the educational system. Um, there's an intentional effort, I believe, to destroy that or ignore that part of the civil rights movement. Well, sure. And even though the Mississippi legislature passed legislation saying that they needed to teach uh, civil rights in the public schools, uh, I've gone to schools for those books that were mailed from the education department in the state were not even opened, still boxes. So young blacks don't know who they are. They don't know why they are. Right. And certainly young whites don't know that. Right. So I see what's happening now as being inevitable. These white kids and the black kids get together and they talk. And some of the white kids, believe it or not, don't understand and are truly upset when there's a difference made between black and white. Mm. They are truly upset. So, you know, to me, the answer is in our educational system. The problem is, I you know, I, I partially agree with that. The problem is that most of the books that we that the children get uh, are written by people out of places like Texas, who control basically uh, the the uh, school books. I mean, those are the people that buy the most books. The publishers uh, will go to the place where you know they got the biggest school system, they got the biggest book, the biggest. Uh, I don't know, they buy more books than anybody else. So the mm -hmm. publisher only interested in that. What's good is a lot of the history is now being written and talked about. Because we used to didn't talk to our children. It was over, we didn't tell them what was going on. Your parents were unique because a lot of parents didn't talk to their children about what was happening to them. When the next generation came along, they didn't talk either. So children are just learning. There's a thirst now for history, for what went on, for what happened. I think that, you know, I, I want to go back because I think when I was coming along, I think more parents talked to their children than ever because they were talking to their children about basic survival. Right. And while they were not outspoken and adamant like my father, my father became the first African-American alderman in this city. Right. Um, my parents were just outspoken, but there were other 
parents and I work with those kids. In fact, I work with some of their grandchildren now. They spoke to their children, but not in the same manner that my father did. Right. And they understood the Bible. They understood how white folks would lynch and how, how white folks would tear young boys from their mothers when they were less than a year old. They understood that, but they did not dwell on that. Right. My parents didn't dwell on it, but my parents dealt with reality every day. And so most of my counterparts, their parents, they understood black history from their parents because you don't get it in school. And that gets me back to the problem. Education mm -hmm. is our biggest problem. Yeah. And, if it, and I think it was Marcus Garvey who said, anyone who lets their oppressor teach their children is killing their child. Mm -hmm. And so you're not going to find, especially here in Mississippi, if you got somebody who's a Klansman, who's the wife of a Klansman, a daughter of a Klansman, and she has to teach young black boys and young black girls, she, I mean, she's, 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 uh, she's almost crazy. So, you know, how can she do that, legitimately teach them who they are, when her background is just the opposite? And I think that, especially in Mississippi and in other areas, who teaches your child how to talk is critical. Right. Who teaches your child how to think is absolutely critical. Who right. teaches your child self-esteem is, is, is more critical. So to me, and that's why we've established, my daughter and I have established an organization called Legacy Education and Community Empowerment Foundation. And there we work with young people to get them to understand from age as early as four years old who they are without teaching them about hatred or anything like that right. so you know that that's that's the concern that that i have about where we're going now young children are, are, are walking up to me doing our some of our virtual sessions coming up to me and talking they don't understand that we teach them not to bully and they don't understand why the leadership is bullying. Right. They don't understand that. Right. So they don't understand that. I can't explain it to them mm -hmm. other than, you know, some people are just, I don't want to use the words I use, but you know, that's not the way you act. <laughs> and that's not professional. Right. And that's that's not, that's not what God wants you to do. And that's not what the Constitution requires you to do. But, you know, you can tell them that all day. And when they see, and it comes down, not just from the national, but it comes down from the state as well. You know, these kids ask me about the governor. I, I, I have no comments because I don't want to give them negatives. But it's all about education in schools and also in daily life. You know, while they don't get certain things in school, they get them from their peers. They get them from television. Right. You know, I, I tell these kids, there's more a black kid can do other than play basketball. Yeah. You know, you yeah. can be a scientist. Right. You know, if you want to play a sport, make some money. You know, yeah. basketball, you're going to make some money for so many years and then you hurt your body. You know, use your mind. Play chess. Right. You know, give them some other options. Well, I didn't mean to get off on that, but... Oh, it's all right. No, it's well, as soon as you bring that up, because in the book, Pieces from the Past, Voices of Heroic Women in Civil Rights, you wrote that, quote, communication is one of the most important gifts we can share with our children. That's right. We must always take the time to tell our children why. What do we need to be telling our youth today? And, and, we, and, we, and, you, and, you, and you talked about that, but what is the why that you're referring to? The why... I like to be straightforward with children and get them to understand that in this world, there are polarizations and there are black, there are white, there are red, there are yellow, they're brown. And the biggest problem is trying to keep each other down. I try to break it down to be realistic. We had a program called Real Racial Equity and we worked with 
Hispanic boys, it's a, bo a program for males. Hispanic boys, Choctaw boys, Native Americans, black boys, white boys, and biracial boys. And that was one of the most enlightening experiences for me because we had to come up with ways to get these kids to understand that they were all human and all a part of God's community called the beloved. And the only way we could do it, starting off, was to tell them about blood and let each one of them prick their fingers and ask them what color was their blood. And when everybody agreed that it was red, it was like a light went off in their heads. And then we could take then, you come from this, your parents do this, your parents do this, but, but we're all in a melting pot. You can be okra, you can be tomatoes, you can be the meat, you can be the beans, but we all come together and we form a delicious Dumbo. And we just have to deal with our children. We just have to talk with our children. And one example that really touched my heart, when I left the University of Mississippi Law School, I thought I would never come back. And for three or four years, I didn't come back. When they had, they incorporated and renewed the Black Law Student Association, I was invited back. And I had no choice but to say yes. Because I had promised God when I was in law school that if I got out without killing somebody, actually choking them or beating them to death, then I would go back to Tougaloo and help the young students who wanted to be lawyers and at least give them some idea as to what to expect in law school. I graduated in May of 1970. I went back to Tougaloo in August of 1970 and taught pre-law and constitutional law and legal dynamics. I taught two courses from 1970 until, until 2000, 2015, I believe. And I taught at night, Wednesday nights. I felt that that was my responsibility to teach young people who were coming along what the system was about and what to watch out for. And I always tell young people when I mentor the kids in, in, in middle school, in high school, I always tell them that I've gone down this road and I've been driving different kinds of cars. But I can tell you if there's a bump a hole, a mud hole, a pothole in the road. If I tell you that and you choose to go 80 miles an hour and you tear up your car, that's your fault. But if I go down that road and tear up my car and don't come back and tell you, slow down, be careful, watch out, then that's my fault. And, and I encourage them to do the same with other people. So when I said that about communications, the reason I am probably not as crazy as some people think I am is because my parents communicated with me and with us and told us what to expect. And you're not shocked. Some of these kids going around here who think that all presidents of the United States are like Barack Obama, they're losing their minds. They're probably on, on drugs. So it, it's, you, you got to communicate to these kids and let them know. I was shocked that Barack Obama was elected because I know this country. So was that. It's absolutely floored. And when he was reelected, oh man, I just said, well, I have to hang it up because I, I have missed this calling. But you got, you know, we got to tell our children that Barack Obama was a man before his time. That, you know, and, and I tell the kids now, God is responsible for that. For that, you know, it's not votes that put him there, because this country was built on racism. It was built on sexism. This country can be so violent, but it has the capacity to be so caring.
And yet we choose not to do that. Our children must understand that. They must understand that there are good people and they're also bad people. Mm-hmm. And, and we, must, we must make them understand it. Well, and it's, and it's interesting because the lines can be blurred. You, you wrote that in 1972, when you lost your case in the federal courts, uh, this is in regards to the Jackson State Massacre. Right. Uh, that you were saddened. That mm-hmm. White society lit up to your expectations, but you cried tears of frustration for the lack of outrage from the black leaders in the community and quote, for those of my own race who refused to call it what it was. Mm-hmm. What was that? I think that's pro- what I was referring to when I talked about communications. When I got out of law school, I was angry at the world. And I was angry because what I had learned in law school about the law was not true. That the justice is not blind. Lady is not blind. And for me to really have that soak in, it was painful. And so I was angry. And I think there were other young black people and young white people who likewise were angry at the system. Just like I see these kids now talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter. Hell, yes, they matter. We've always mattered. But it takes, it takes having somebody's foot on your neck to stand up. You know, and that's what bothered me in Jackson. When here you had these young people killed, uh, you know, a black boy who was working at a, a super stand store at night, going to school full time so he could take care of his mother and going across the campus and he was murdered and the explanation was that they thought they saw a sniper on the other side. Now to me, that is ludicrous. And I felt the black community should been, have been up in arms. I felt the black community should have been marching. And when they refused to do that, and when they criticized me for being articulate and being disrespectful to blacks who were holding us down, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I, I threw up my hands. And I, I have a home in Jackson. Um, I left Jackson, and I don't regret it. I came to Forest, where came back to Forest, where people want people to help them. And, and there's not all this competition as to who's right and who's wrong. And Jackson, that's the problem I had. Everybody wanted to, to speak up and be on television, but nobody wanted to deal with the hard issues of calling racism, racism. And I just, you know, when I said that in the book, I meant it then, I mean it now. Yeah. Now, now you, uh, you sued the state of Mississippi. Yes. Um, and this, was, this was about uh, integrating the Mississippi State Highway Patrol. Right. Which was actually led to the, uh, to the Highway Patrol uh, integration throughout the country. Right, that's right. Yeah, and, 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 and part of what I read was that uh, you, you, you really tie in this need to, for representation within the uh, Highway Patrol because there's a connection between the Highway Patrol and the Klan. That's right. What, 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 what's that? Well, back then, everybody knows it, black and white, that the Highway Patrol was an unofficial arm of the Klan. And everybody knew that. And they worked hand in hand. That's what happened in the Shelba County uh, with Schwerner Goodman uh, and Cheney. The Highway Patrol was in cahoots and in contact with the Klan. And that bothered me. And it bothered me that, that they could kill, Highway Patrolmen could kill black people under the guise of keeping law and order. 
it bothered me. And I was at Parchment. I went to visit some of my classmates who were in jail at Parchment as a result of protests at the University of Mississippi. And I had graduated. And I went to visit them and I, I saw the conditions there. And the highway patrolmen were, were there as well. And they were keeping order. And it just seemed that, you know, when I was at Tougaloo, the highway patrol we went to Jackson State and Ben Brown was killed. You look up and the highway patrolmen were there. And there was this guy named Lloyd Jones who was present when Ben Brown was killed in 67 and who was present when the two stu students were killed in 1970. I took his deposition at least 15 times. He's, his first reference was nigger. And he thought that he was gonna blow my mind because you know, when I heard that, when I got out of law school, I usually showed out. But he said, he said nigger. Then I kept going with him. He got down to nigger. And then he got down to nigger again. And it was just, you could just see the racism and the hatred in his answers. But he was a highway patrolman and he was one that they all looked up to. So, you know, we had my, my, Ex-husband had his nephew to go out and, and try to get an application for the highway patrol and his friend, Jerome Mango. And they went out and they said they didn't have an application. Then we, we got a white guy, two white guys to go out and they gave it to them with a little question. So we had it. So we filed a lawsuit and Aaron Henry uh, helped us a lot on that. And um, we had a trial before Judge Nixon, the same judge who uh, tried the Jackson State case. And it was, it, was a, it was a fight. But we managed to get, albeit very reluctantly, and having to go to the Fifth Circuit on several occasions, we managed to get them to admit African-Americans. And during that whole process, we started dealing with, at a later date, uh, women as well. I have one more thing I want to ask, but Levon, do you have anything first? No, I'm just, no, no. Yeah, that's, that's a deep one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I want to read one more stanza from your mother's poem written back in 1967. Mm -hmm. The inhumane deeds of the past century press heavily upon her back. To be free, she cries and struggles. Lord, ere her poor spirit cracks. Mm -hmm. I don't think your spirit's cracked yet. Let me just say this. My spirit has been shaken, but my fundamental core cannot be broken. And my mother understood her daughter probably better than my father. That was very close to my daddy. But my mother understood my frustrations as a black woman. She also understood my frustrations in trying to compete in an all white, all male world. And I think that's why she wrote me that poem because she knew that there were so many, I was going, I was assigned, I was swimming upstream and regardless of how the water just took over, got in my ears, in my eyes, she knew that I was not going to stop. So when she wrote me that poem, it did me so much good. And I often looked at that poem when things got rough. Like right now in my law office, in the other office, I have pictures of my mama and dad all over my office. I was kidnapped by one of my former clients in 2002 in this very office. And I should have been killed. But I promise you, I jumped out of the car. It was a long story. I don't want to go into it all now. But I felt there were two people, two angels with me. And I don't, I think this may be the second time I publicly said it, but that's that spirit that will not be broken because they are still here. And I look to them to help me when things get so bad. 
So that poem, my mother prayed for me until the day she died. When my mother died, I could hear her telling me, now you on your own. You got to pray for yourself and Tweety, my daughter. And when mama died, promise you, I have prayed for my daughter, my grandson, my children, all the kids. I have to do that every night. And that poem started me to realize that God and I had a pact that my mama had tried to make certain that that pact, and I would observe that pact until I died. Wow. I, what, is, what do you think is the best way to carry your message forward? I, I think the best way is to, I speak a lot to young people. I went back to the University of Mississippi and I speak at least twice a year to young black students, law students. Okay. That professor, white professor, uh, Mike Hoffenheimer, he's invited me back to his class, Remedies uh, and Injunctive Relief. I didn't want to go at first, but I've been going back to his class about 10 years, speaking to his, his class. And the reception that I received from white kids it's just, it's really unbelievable because right. they are thirsty to know what happened. Yeah. And when you tell them, you have to tell them you got to go because they have so many questions. To me, that's my, that's my mission, right. to educate these kids. And most people say, well, why don't you write a book? I, these young people are not reading books anymore. I want to talk to them so they can have an opportunity to ask me questions that they could not ask after having read a book. Right. Now, my daughter is very upset because she wants me to write a book and, I, and I, I, I've I, been able to get away with it, but she probably put some more pressure on me. But I think the best way to educate young people is to dialogue with them. Right. And with this program that we have now called Legacy, I mean, it is awesome because we get a chance to dialogue with kids who've never been out of Scott County. We get a chance to take them on trips. We get a chance to talk to their parents. It, in order for you to be in our program, your parents must approve and they must play a part. They must volunteer. And believe it or not, parents love their children. They love their children. They just don't know how to properly parent because nobody prepared them. And that's what, what I do and what my daughter does. And compared to practicing law, it's heaven. I mean, you're not stressed out. You know, you don't have to try to please a judge and say, yes, sir, when you really don't mean it. Right. And say, yes, your honor, which killed me when I had no respect for, for them uh, other than the fact they were judges. Right. I mean, that, that part is stressful. So, so when you deal with a mother who's so happy that you are taking time to talk to her child, to take her child to the park, to take her child to church. I mean, it's so rewarding. And I say this, I tell God, thank you for letting me have had these experiences and get an opportunity before you call me home to reflect on what I, what I did and what I could have done. And, and what you still might do. Yeah, I mean, God has me here for a purpose. And I don't argue with the Lord. You know, I used to, but when my mama was praying for me, but, you know, I stopped. I don't argue anymore. I have a quick question for you. Mm -hmm. I, I want to go back to Tougaloo College real quick. This is just, you know. <laughs> All right. That's that's in your blood and on your t-shirt that's right that's right but you know uh, yeah i want to talk about that blood for a moment here <laughs> you got you got you got to give me something give, give me give me some dirt on my mom no i don't do that <laughs> we don't what, do that no no, we don't do that no 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 what what's what's your favorite memory of my mother there too um the joke about her in the uh dormitory walking down the hall at night and this girl, not knowing who she was, starts screaming, uh, white girl in the dorm, you know. Uh, but with your mother, that, were, that incident, but the one about sitting at the 
that's always every time I think of Joan, I think of that fact that she was brave enough to integrate Woolworth at the counter and have people throw ketchup on her, sugar, everything. You know, I that that really, 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 really bothers me. But when I see that she was able to make her point, and because of that particular sacrifice, things changed, and Black folks could can now eat in situations like that or establishments like that. A Woolworth is gone, but you can go into McDonald's. Your mother made that possible, she and others who were with her. If I had to go through that, we would probably still not be eating there. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and I tell anybody, and I used to have your mama laugh, and I said, mm -mm, you're a good one. Because if they look like they're going to pay poor coffee on me, uh, ketchup, it's on. But that would have been just what they wanted because it gave them an excuse to beat me up. So mm -hmm. I understood what your mother went through when the judge called me a nurse, I understood then. That's, they're baiting you. They're, they're baiting you. And when you jump at it, and my dad always told me, don't ever let anybody predict your actions. Right. And the bad part about it is when I was growing up, they could predict my actions. Now, if you called me something, I mean, it was on. We were going to move. Right. You know, but your mother, and then, the gentleness that she showed me when I was a pledge. And that's something you'll never know. Mm -hmm. I won't tell you or anybody else. I ain't asking. I, I got you. But she was a good sorority sister? She was one of the best. She and Joyce Latner. Mm -hmm. They were good to me. And there were others who might not who were not as good, but they were good to me. I guess it's because I admired them so much, both of them. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Well, and they had a love for including those who did not have effective advocates, including them in the process. Hmm. Well, thank you for joining us, Judge Constance. We appreciate it so much. You're quite welcome, and it's like talking to your mama. <laughs> and I I enjoyed the, the debate very much. Thank you so much. Well, it's an you, honor. You, you, you got some spirit in you too. You me? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it comes out. You try to fool, but it comes out. Well, he, he, he did his time in prison as a teenager. <laughs> I tell you what, they didn't break him. They didn't break his spirit. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. Alrighty. Take care now. All right, take care now. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. Please support this program and the other works of the Joan Trump Howard Mulholland Foundation to end racism by making a contribution. A simple $5 monthly recurring donation makes a huge difference for us and makes what we do possible. You can learn more at jtmfoundation.org. That's jtmfoundation.org. And until next time, don't be afraid to get uncomfortable. <laughs>